Hello and welcome to session 12. Over the next 1.5 hours, we will discuss advances in pathogen detection and the fight against AMR with an array of experts on the subject, and this session is moderated by Farhad Imam from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Farhad, take it away. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. My name is Farhad Imam. I'm a senior program officer at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and I would like to, to welcome you to session 12 today of the World Sepsis Congress. Um, uh, I would like to thank Biomeria as the exclusive sponsor of today's session. And I'm very excited to bring to you a series of speakers today focused on uh, important aspects of, um, uh, of relevant to sepsis. Uh, and, and I think that we'll, we have a series of talks that are gonna be quite interesting uh, that deal with uh, advanced methods for pathogen detection as well as strategies to fight against antimicrobial resistance. Our first talk will be from Dr. Yevgeny Idilovich, who's a professor of clinical microbiology um, at the French Loeffler Institute of Medical Microbiology. His research mainly involves development of novel diagnostic approaches, particularly in the field of sepsis, and he has suggested novel methods for rapid identification and susceptibility testing of pathogens in septic patients. Um, we look forward to your talk, Yevgeny. Uh, Please go ahead, uh, and uh, we, we look forward to, to hearing from your uh, speech today. Uh, hello, everybody, and thank you very much, Fahad, for introduction, and uh, thank you very much also to organizers for inviting me to speak today about uh, how to improve and how to uh, accelerate uh, the microbiological diagnostics um, of sepsis. I would like to start uh, here and uh, in the last decade, um, uh, several methods appeared which allow us to uh, considerably accelerate uh, microbiological diagnostics of sepsis. And this um, uh, rapid methods can be applied on uh, different uh, stages of the process of blood culture diagnostics. And um, due to very uh, short time, only 10 minutes per talk, I will not be able to go into detail uh, with uh, all of these methods. Uh, what I want to say here is that as we were asked uh, by our um, microbiological society to uh, define what is uh, currently standard or state of the art in microbiological diagnostics of sepsis, uh, after we performed the literature uh, review, we uh, defined that uh, species identification should nowadays uh, be uh, available uh, on the same day of blood culture positivity because it is currently possible with uh, the methods we have and uh, also for antimicrobial susceptibility testing um, the finding should be available at latest uh, on the next day after blood culture positivity again because uh, it is now possible with uh, affordable uh, methods and uh, how does it look like in uh, the real life? A um, couple of years ago, we performed an um, online survey on um, practices of blood culture diagnostics in Europe and uh, 209 laboratories and 25 uh, European countries uh, uh, participated. And we saw that uh, two thirds of uh, all laboratories did apply rapid technologies, for example, rapid uh, identification or rapid antimicrobial susceptibility testing, or at least something. And one sort of laboratories didn't do that, so they only used uh, classical processing methods. 
due to limited time uh, from uh, now on, I would like to uh, focus uh, on one issue, which is, uh, to my opinion, uh, extremely, extremely important in blood culture diagnostics. And I would like to start with a story about this study, which we performed uh, several years ago. It was a study on, uh, it was a first randomized blood, uh, uh, randomized controlled study on um, multiplex PCR uh, diagnostics um, from whole blood. So multiplex, multiplex PCR pathogen notification from whole blood. And indeed we uh, saw some effect. We were able to um, adjust the therapy uh, earlier in the group um, where we did this test, but uh, on the other hand, what we also saw in, in that study and, and what is uh, nowadays even uh, more interesting uh, as a finding of that study is that the time from blood sampling to the time uh, to the arrival in the laboratory was uh, very high with uh, about 13 uh, hours, while the test itself took uh, less than six hours. So we, we were quite a bit uh, shocked about that and uh, went to the literature to see if it is a specific problem of our hospital or maybe also the problem, um, a general problem. And indeed there are some uh, studies which uh, show that, uh, that show very similar times uh, from uh, blood sampling to the arrival in the laboratory. And then we uh, tried to find the reason for that and um, we found that actually the most important reason is that um, the laboratories are not open, uh, the most of the laboratories are not open in the evening and uh, in the night. So the most important reason is the laboratory opening hours. And um, if um, you don't accept samples in the evening and in the night, and if uh, the sample is taken uh, like uh, at uh, 7 p.m., so it will be only possible to start the incubation of blood uh, cultures in the next morning. Um, therefore, um, we now more and more use uh, this term microbiologistics. It is a word which I learned from uh, Martin Sundqvist from Sweden. And it means actually that um, uh, optimization of organizational issues uh, may be uh, more important than, than the introduction of uh, uh, different sophisticated and uh, expensive devices or uh, techniques. The second critical point in the blood culture diagnostics is when the blood culture bottle becomes positive. You can um, you have an alarm which is acoustic and optical alarm and again if this alarm happens at uh, 7 p.m. and nobody in the lab to uh, process the sample so you cannot uh, transfer this information to uh, Clinicians, you cannot say what what is in this uh, uh, positive blood culture. You cannot even say that there is a positive blood culture. And again, um, we speak here about uh, the importance of uh, microbiologistics. Interestingly, uh, there is a quite old paper, um, uh, already 25 years uh, old. Uh, it was at the time of introduction of continuously monitoring automated systems. And um, I just want to read the conclusion of the authors. They write that no time benefit for detection of positive blood cultures is gained with uh, continuously measuring systems if uh, on one hand loading and on the other hand processing of vials is organized discontinuously as in our laboratory. And uh, the problem is that it's still the case um, 
this discontinuous uh, processing of uh, samples still the problem in many, many, many uh, laboratories. Again, let's go back to the survey which we performed a couple of years ago. And um, we asked the question, uh, how many uh, laboratories are able to start the incubation of blood culture bottles 24 hours a day? And it was less than the half of laboratories in Europe. And those laboratories which do not offer this 24 hour service only cover uh, like about 10.5 hours a day. And the second critical question, uh, how many laboratories are able to start processing uh, blood cultures immediately after uh, there is a positivity signal, uh, signal um, 24 hours a day? And um, we have to say here that 87% of laboratories are not able to do that. So that we uh, had to uh, make a conclusion in this paper that laboratories have started to implement novel technologies for rapid uh, identification and AST, but uh, progress is severely compromised by limited operating hours. So that current practice of blood culture diagnostics in Europe complies only partly with the requirements for optimal sepsis or BSI uh, management. Uh, there is now an uh, initiative um, to try to uh, change uh, this situation, uh, and this is an initiative between um, uh, intensive care clinicians and uh, microbiologists, and this is definitely not easy because the issue is a financial and strategical and political issue. And the first um, activity we want to start with is to increase uh, Visibility of uh, visibility of this uh, problem uh, to make a study to uh, uh, track uh, blood cultures uh, blood culture bottles uh, to exactly show um, the way of uh, of a bottle and uh, because we suspect that this uh, so-called dead times of diagnostics which are not used uh, for uh, real diagnostic maybe even uh, uh, longer than the time which we um, a need for productive diagnostics, like for growth of uh, microorganisms. I would like to conclude. Uh, classical 72 hours blood culture diagnostics does not meet uh, the requirements of modern sepsis management. Uh, there is a lot of realistic uh, possibilities, uh, meanwhile, for acceleration of diagnostics. Organizational aspects should be optimized uh, for example, sample transportation and laboratory opening hours. And uh, the most important message I want to convey uh, today is that the implementation of 24-7 microbiological diagnostics is the highest priority if uh, we want to improve uh, the management of uh, septic patients. Uh, thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Evgeny. Um... I wanted to to start with some with some questions uh, from from the audience. So, um, in in terms of the the, the techniques that, that that you've identified, um, and and some of these concerns about uh, blood cultures and, and the efficiency, how how do you see these mapping over to any of the um, uh, of of the systems issues in terms of access to and rapidity of of blood culture in uh, other low resource settings? Uh, that's a, an interesting uh, point. So um, you see that um, the most the most important issue or point I wanted to, uh, to speak today about is um, not about the technical side um, 
but uh, about the organizational aspects. And what we can see is that um, uh, these organizational aspects are uh, by far not optimal in industrial countries like in Europe. That is what we what we saw in this survey um, I cited, and um, I guess in um, low-income countries it will uh, be not better. But it's uh, the situation is is actually uh, dramatic enough also in uh, industrial countries. That is interesting point. Yeah, and. Uh, on the other uh, hand, I would say that is some sort of hope uh, for countries uh, which cannot um, afford a lot of um, expensive devices. Yeah, because we see that uh, you can do uh, a lot, a lot um, for sepsis management by just optimizing organizational aspects, and of course you can do that uh, in every country. Oh, great! Thank you. So uh, one other question in terms of, of resistance, uh, any, any, any recommendations in terms of identification of, of bacteria that, that are resistance, any, any, any uh, advice for quicker ways to, to basically identify resistant strains? Uh, right, uh, important issue. So um, we have, uh, meanwhile, um, quite a lot, quite, quite a high amount of uh, sophisticated uh, systems for um, Early identification of resistance markers, uh, they can be based on um, genetic markers like uh, multiplex PCR systems, um, which is again uh, quite um, or cannot be affordable for everybody, I would say. Yeah. And um, again, here it is possible to uh, improve the diagnostics by. Um, quite uh, simple measures yeah like uh, there is a lot of methodologies which can allow you to um, start uh, antimicrobial susceptibility testing or resistance detection not from major colonies on the next day which is the classical procedure so we are classically wait for this uh, major grown colonies okay. until next day and only then we start uh, to inoculate them in our system so that we have uh, the result on the day on the next next day right and uh, there's enough procedures described which uh, cost almost nothing which allow us to inoculate our ast systems any system used already on the same day of blood culture positivity you can use uh, first um, uh, the um, short cultures on solid medium uh, actually only um, few hours are enough to have uh, so much biomass uh, on the plate so that you can uh, do standardized inoculum and uh, inoculate it in your systems, uh, any system you use. And on the other side, you can also do direct uh, processing like lysis centrifugation to come to the uh, bacterial pellet and to inoculate that. So um, I would say that uh, uh, with um, almost zero um, investment, you can just accelerate the resistance detection or susceptibility detection by one day. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Udelovich, uh, for, for helping us think about how to be more efficient with, uh, with time to results on, on blood cultures. I would next like to welcome our, our next speaker, Dr. Holger Rode. Um, uh, from the University Hospital of uh, Hamburg in Germany. He's going to be speaking to us about uh, point-of-care pathogen identification 
to attempt to, to fight overuse of antibiotics. Um, Dr. Voda is a medical microbiologist and holds a professorship in, in molecular microbiology at the Institute for Medical Microbiology, Virology, and Hygiene um, at Hamburg-Eppendorf. His group is interested in molecular pathogenesis of foreign material-associated infections, the clinical validation of novel technologies for the detection and characterization of bacterial pathogens, and the analysis of, our, of effects of antibiotic usage gained by implementation of rapid methods for pathogen detection. Dr. Voda, the floor is yours. Okay, dear Farad, thank you very much for introducing me. Um, dear ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure for me to uh, talk today about the role of uh, point-of-care pathogen identification uh, in the context of overuse of antibiotics. And I think it is quite important to, re uh, um, if we want to appreciate the potential that we have in using these kind of techniques uh, to find uh, the overuse of antibiotics, it is very important to see that empirism is a basic concept in infectious disease treatment. So we choose antibiotics uh, driven by empiric decisions. And this is certainly to some extent necessary. But on the other hand, I think it is very important to understand that diagnostic errors occurring subsequently lead to inappropriate antimicrobial use. And these diagnostic errors depend on the inability to identify the pathogen or to identify the pathogen too late in the, um, in the workup of our septic patients. And the results of these diagnostic errors and the inappropriate antimicrobial use is, for example, an overuse of carbapenems, and these are associated with the novel emergence of carbapenem resistance. And another example um, it comes from the uh, Staphylococcus aureus um, field in the therapy, where we can see that the overuse of glycopeptides may cause harm given the fact that glycopeptides are inappropriate for mesocillin susceptible as aureus infections. So there is certainly a need um, to identify the pathogen and uh, this needs to be done quickly and precise to allow for early targeted therapy and that might help us to avoid unnecessary broad spectrum coverage of pathogens. So what can microbiology do in this context? So we have seen a couple of novel techniques over the past couple of years. Mass spectrometry and next generation sequencing are quite um, um, interesting methods, but they demand a high amount of invest. So these techniques are very uh, um, very expensive and they uh, can only be provided by centralized labs but if we look at for example molecular testing we see that these methods have become commercially available and they are integrated multiplex formats available what does that mean and what does this cause with our way how we treat and how we process um, for example, positive blood cultures in the lab. So uh, the, um, the, these uh, integrated systems um, are characterized by the idea that we combine different steps from, path from DNA extractions uh, over amplification, detection, interpretation into one cartridge, into one system. And by doing so, we open the door 
of PCR tests also for non-PCR trained personnel. So you don't need um, specifically trained PCR personnel anymore. And in the, um, on the other hand, you also need no dedicated room concept. So the infrastructure for providing PCR assays is becoming um, easier to achieve. And that means that the implementation of rapid amplification, integrated amplification assays, assays make it feasible to provide um, PCR assays even for in small scale labs. So if we look at blood culture diagnostics, we see that there's a couple of commercially available systems and they all have in common that they uh, identify species from positive blood cultures, for example. And these are combined with the identification of lead or key resistance markers, for example, MACA, VAN-AB, or a couple of um, beta-lactamases. And these systems work extremely rapid. So from the start to the report, you uh, will only need one hour to one and a half hours. So that is extremely efficient and rapid. And uh, so what does this cause? So in blood culture diagnostics, um, we see that um, conventionally we need 24 hours um, for subculturing and identif uh, identification of our species and an additional 24 hours for susceptibility testing. So if you use mole uh, molecular assays, you can immediately at a time when we usually would provide a microscopic result to the clinician, provide species identification and resistance markers. And appreciating that the, uh, the time point at uh, when a microscopic uh, result is initially communicated to, to the clinician is the moment at which uh, the uh, most significant changes in therapeutic uh, strategies are being taken. This is really a critical step which could change the, uh, the quality of antibiotic treatment. And in fact, if we look at Staphylococcus aureus bacteremia, we can really see that introducing a molecular assay into the workup of positive blood cultures really speeds up the time to detection of the methicillin-resistant or methicillin-susceptible phenotype, uh, resulting in a, in a speeding up the time to optimal treatment. So these patients are being treated uh, um, under, in an optimized way. So, And this has been documented in a couple of uh, studies. Um, it needs to be stressed <coughs> that, unfortunately, these studies fail to report uh, to identify outcome changes, like mortality outcome changes for these patients. Uh, this has been achieved in the gram-negative field, where we can see that rapid identification and susceptibility prediction using PCR assays really can um, can lower the more the thirty-day uh, and sixty-day all-cause mortality in sepsis patients. So this result has not been um, re uh, reproduced by others, but uh, which is what is consistently seen in all these studies is that um, you can use these rapid tests to accelerate time to optimal therapy. Importantly, it is not enough to only install these uh, machines. You need communication. 
so the result alone is not able to change the way we treat patients. We need uh, commu um, 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 appropriate communication of these uh, results to the clinician, for example, via antibiotic stewardship teams. And this has been consistently shown in different studies. And there's a, um, a very nice um, meta-analysis uh, looking at the effect of uh, rapid uh, blood culture diagnostics using PCR or, or MALDI-TOF techniques. And these uh, authors, they um, um, found that, in fact, you can um, reduce the mortality in, uh, in sepsis by rapid diagnostic assays, but it is absolutely necessary to combine these tests with antibiotic stewardship programs. So that is indicating that these methods are not standalone methods, but they need to be integrated into diagnostic frameworks, uh, looking not only at the lab, but also looking at all the other steps that need to be undertaken on the way to the result. And certainly um, in the ideal world, the speed you gain by using point-of-care assays and, uh, and molecular tests is uh, then optimal if these time, um, um, the, the time of transport and reporting are short, which is evidently only then when the healthcare provider and the lab service are in close uh, proximity. But in fact, today we are confronted with long transport uh, between the healthcare provider and the lab service. And this uh, transport times, they really, this really eats up the effects that you gain by using rapid diagnostics. So how can point of care assays help in this situation? I think this is an additional benefit of these integrated lab systems that you can bring the lab back to the healthcare provider. By using these integrated systems, you can think about installing satellite point-of-care labs, even in smaller hospitals. And these labs will only provide these key diagnostics, which are necessary for rapid, uh, for example, sepsis workup, blood culture workup. And then you really can hear, uh, shunt the, the time and really make use of the, the speed that you get by using the molecular tests. To summarize, so uh, the reduction of unnecessary broad spectrum antibiotics uh, um, will um, is necessary to reduce selection pressures and to optimize favorable outcomes of patients. And uh, the basis for this is accurate and rapid pathogen det uh, detection. Point-of-care assays provide easy access platforms for rapid pathogen detection, accelerated reporting. So these commercial point-of-care format amplification assays are capable to characterize pathogens and resistance determinants from positive blood cultures, but also other clinical specimens. Um, the amplification-based point-of-care assays have the potential to support decentralization of rapid pathogen detection and outsourcing in long distance specimen transportation, um, which have inherently slowed down specimen processing can be um, turned back at least a little bit. And uh, finally, um, I think it is evident that point of care assays have proven effects on time to optimal therapy and the reduction of the use of broad spectrum antibiotics. And uh, it is, really important to consider that 
point-of-care testing alone is not enough. These assays must be combined with antimicrobial stewardship programs. And with that, I thank you for your attention. I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Roda. I think uh, um, there's a couple of questions here I'd love to, to, to ask you from the audience. So one, one is that, uh, you know, thinking from the perspective of a clinician, you know, it's, it's always difficult when you have uh, a sick patient in front of you not to act. Uh, and so, you know, although point of care testing brings, uh, as you say, the, the, the time cycle closer to the bedside, to the patient, to that clinical decision, um, can it ever be fast enough to stop a clinician uh, uh, for, who's concerned about a patient from starting antibiotics and at least that first course prior to getting some kind of microbial answer? Excellent question. Um... Certainly, I, I'm fully aware of the fact that you have to act. So if there's a critical patient, you have to act. You have to uh, apply antibiotics. But um, having these techniques in, the, in, in our hands, you can have, on one hand, uh, or you can bring patients back to a smaller spectrum antibiotics faster, on one hand. And on the other hand, so for in Germany, for example, we have a very low prevalence of ESBL and uh, and carbapenem resistant uh, organisms in the uh, majority of the uh, the population. Uh, nevertheless, carbapenems are um, the um, the the uh, first line of antibiotics, mm -hmm. even in non-critical patients. So, and having these techniques, we can provide additional confidence to the clinician uh, by. Uh, by uh, demonstrating that we can fast identify these potentially difficult to treat pathogens for rapid then escalation to, uh, to broad spectrum antibiotics. So that is another effect uh, that, uh, that needs to be considered. And um, so that's why I think that it needs to be integrated into, uh, into a framework where these uh, empiric therapies are immediately associated with the uh, with the uh, demand for uh, pathogen identification. I think that is at uh, some places not optimally uh, organized. Sure. And then time for one more question. Um, so w what about uh, reliance on, on these point of care tests that some people were saying, you know, in, in their hands, they often get indeterminate, let's say, from, from a PCR test. And then, you know, so they're waiting, they're waiting, and then the, the answer they get ultimately isn't an answer. Um, is, is that just an issue of the technology catching up and getting good enough and it's moving fast enough that we can assume that it will get there? Or is that an inherent limitation in these kind of point of care tests? And another excellent question. And I think so maybe that the term point of care is a little bit misleading um, because it suggests that these tests will be performed by clinicians at the bedside. Uh, I think that, and that is also our experience here, uh, that these tests are very reliable, they are robust, but you still need uh, a, a certain degree of knowledge how to handle specimens in the lab. So I think that still there need uh, it needs to be uh, these these uh, instrument needs to be placed in a, in a lab environment, and. So if you do this handling according to the manufacturer's instructions, they are really robust, and you uh, you can really um, lower the the number of uh, um, of of tests that do not provide a reliable result. But there still are 
issues regarding the robustness of these tests. Absolutely. And uh, uh, this needs to be worked on in the future. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Dr. Avoda, for your expertise and for the presentation. Um, I'd you. now like to move on to uh, Dr. Shinjuti Shaha um, from Dhaka, Bangladesh. Uh, unfortunately, Dr. Shaha is unable to join us today. Um, she has uh, um, COVID uh, and is having too much coughing, unfortunately, to be able to give her presentation. She, she, she is doing well. Um, but unfortunately not well enough to be able to, to provide the presentation. This is uh, unfortunately too common a story among colleagues, friends, and family in the world. I would like to tell you a little bit about Dr. Shaha uh, and her work at the Child Health Research Foundation in Bangladesh. Um, she works as the, at the intersection of molecular biology and public health, and after completing her PhD in molecular genetics at the University of Toronto in Canada, she moved to Bangladesh, back to Bangladesh, to work on the front lines of public health. Currently, she focuses on pediatric preventable infectious diseases, uh, and her goals are to use modern molecular technologies, like some of the things that you've heard about already today, including on-site metagenomics. This is genome sequencing of multiple different bacterial um, a bacteria that may be present in a sample all at once to identify etiologies that evade standard laboratory testing, which is traditionally targeted um, uh, laboratory testing, uh, and even to be able to do that in resource-constrained settings. Um, she's also working to establish genomic surveillance to track and understand the molecular basis of antimicrobial resistance in endemic bacterial pathogens and estimating the indirect impacts of vaccines on the overall health system of resource-constrained settings. Um, uh, her work is grounded in advancing health and research equity in Bangladesh and beyond. If you'll see by the slide that she's asked us um, to, to, to share with you all, um, that she's a strong advocate of science by, the many, by and for the many, not the few, uh, and uh, that she has a strong belief that everyone across this world should have equal access to the practice and the benefits of science. She is a member of the Polio Transition Independent Monitoring Board and of the Global Polio Eradication Initiative, a Gates goalkeeper of sustainable development goals and an associate editor of BMJ Global Health. She is also uh, a, a grantee of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, and uh, a close uh, collaborator and friend of mine. So um, uh, collectively, we can wish Shinjuti the best for her recovery. Thank her for, for her groundbreaking work. Um, I did uh, one of the slides that, that you may have seen if you saw um, my talk yesterday in one of the, the earlier sessions was actually from her work where she was able to identify um, uh, so-called mystery pathogens um, in uh, meningitis samples, neonatal meningitis samples that had gone, called, that, that were undiagnosed basically. These were uh, very, very critically ill um, uh, infants. Uh, um, with uh, um, uh, cerebrospinal fluid that was clearly uh, uh, highly, highly inflammatory, but using the traditional culture uh, p direct targeted PCR and uh, antigen-based um, uh, uh, testing that is available, there was, a, there was no answer obtained. So these were culture-negative meningitis samples, clearly severe uh, clinical cases. And using uh, untargeted metagenomics, she was able to solve half of these cases and identify pathogens that were non-traditional that physicians uh, and even infectious disease specialists would not normally think 
cause neonatal meningitis. So again, just just uh, um, recognizing that the importance of untargeted techniques and bringing them to, to global health settings can help us understand new pathogens, new potential vaccine and drug targets that otherwise we wouldn't know to use and that our empiric therapies maybe are not effective for. Um, Jinjuzi, I've tried to do justice to uh, what otherwise would have been a, a, a really uh, amazing talk, um, uh, and hopefully we'll get a chance to, to, to hear from you in the near future um, and, and get to hear your story in full. In the meantime, we'll move right ahead to Dr. Jessica Manning. She's going to be talking to us about the scaling of pathogen detection for sepsis in the global health community uh, using techniques very similar to Dr. Shaha's. She's based at the International Center of Research in Cambodia. Um, she's an infectious disease physician scientist with the NIAID, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease at, at the National Institutes of Health in America. Since 2008, she has lived and worked in Africa and Southeast Asia with a research focus on mosquito-borne diseases like dengue and malaria. Since 2017, Jessica has led NIAID's clinical and translational research efforts aimed at better understanding vector-borne diseases in Southeast Asia. And in today's world with unexpected and explosive outbreaks, her team uses new technologies like metagenomics, next-generation sequencing to identify pathogens in sick patients, as well as innovative approaches such as uh, vaccine development uh, targeting the mosquito itself to try and curb future epidemics. Currently, she is an assistant clinical investigator and also serving as a science attache at the U.S. Embassy at Phnom Penh and head of NIAID's International Center of Excellence um, uh, in Research in Cambodia. I should mention that both of these investigators, uh, Dr. Manning and uh, Dr. Shaha, um, with uh, um, their metagenomic sequencing, were the first uh, scientific groups in each of their respective countries of Bangladesh and Cambodia to be able to identify and, and, and sequence and assemble um, the COVID virus in the current pandemic. Um, so really truly making uh, uh, um, groundbreaking uh, public health impact in addition to doing cutting edge research. Uh, Dr. Manning, uh, please uh, go ahead and uh, begin your presentation. Great, thank you Farhad for uh, the introduction and uh, in St. Judy's honor, I will um, be speaking about IDC for both of us. Uh, so today I'm going to be talking about scaling pathogen detection in a global health setting. And um, really, when it comes to being a physician here in, in Cambodia, uh, we're, we're certainly limited in terms of what diagnostics are available to us. And in, in our typical resource scarce setting, uh, we know that there is a whole host of pathogens uh, out there responsible for for these diseases. And really the reason we, um, we started asking these questions is because we had a dengue cohort that we'd set up in Cambodia. As Farhad mentioned, I'm primarily interested in vector-borne diseases. And we, we realized that really only about 10% of those fevers were, were due to dengue in non-epidemic years. And so it, it begged the question of what else was causing these fevers in our, in our cohort in this peri-urban area of Cambodia. And so uh, we posed to, uh, to Bill Melinda Gates uh, Foundation and the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub how we could employ metagenomic next generation sequencing to really understand what was the microbial landscape in Cambodia. And um, for our own purposes related to vector-borne diseases, how could we find more underappreciated vector-borne diseases uh, using these new technologies? And uh, since 
uh, since Judy is not here, um, I would thought I would go ahead and introduce, introduce very quickly how pathogen metagenomics uh, works uh, for the rest of the the group here. And so as Farhad mentioned, it's about sequencing uh, all of the pathogens in a particular clinical sample. So we have a sick patient who comes in with a fever and we take um, sera or now nasopharyngeal swabs as well. But the data I'll be presenting to you today is actually just from sera alone. And all those pathogens that are present in that patient sample, including commensals, particularly for, um, for the, the swabs, uh, then we move either through an RNA or DNA extraction process. Uh, we deplete human RNA through the way using a fast select kit. And then um, all of that is, is basically a typical shotgun approach where we have, um, we've prepared a, a DNA or an, uh, a cDNA library that is uh, chopped up into lots of different pieces that get sequenced on our iSeq. Uh, which we were fortunate to receive through the Bill and Melinda uh, Gates Foundation, um, which is one of the smallest platform that Illumina has, producing about 6 million reads per run. And then all of that basically goes to a cloud-based open source platform called IDSeq uh, that then assembles our reads and gives us a taxonomic um, identification of what pathogens are most likely causing uh, disease in that patient. Um, we're also able to look at AMR, we're able to um, look at the microbiome, and we're able to do some phylogenetics um, within just only this platform. And so this was really powerful uh, here in Cambodia, where most people do not have PhDs in bioinformatics, yet they want the actionable public health information that can come from metagenomics. And so uh, we started with our pediatric cohort, um, which was about 800 children that reported to uh, a peri-urban hospital with a catchment area of 50,000 people, um, but all the children from about 10 kilometers. And then with the IDSeq study that we call um, our cross-sectional febrile cohort, uh, we were able to expand that to all ages. So from six months of age to 65 years of age, uh, we uh, then basically expanded that group to more than 12, 1,200 people, and uh, the majority of which were still children coming in. And uh, as of last week, when I last looked at the numbers, uh, since we started in the summer of 2019, we have enrolled um, 650 patients and we sequenced about 83% of those patients, uh, not without um, certainly roadblocks along the way, but overall, uh, we've been fairly pleased with the success doing this um, here in Cambodia, where we have a variety of obstacles. And uh, in that large cohort, we get about a 50% pathogen detection rate in, um, in our patient samples. And if you'll recall, I mentioned right the data I'm showing you now is only from Sierra because we did this starting out looking for uh, what was the microbial landscape in Sierra, but also what were underappreciated vector-borne diseases. And so uh, we're certainly missing uh, and those initial respiratory infections and GI infections that may be contributing. Um, but moving along, what we initially saw in terms of both the, um, the proverbial and the actual microbial landscapes here is that uh, because we happened to do this during an arboviral epidemic year, is that the majority of the, the largest clinical category was vector-borne diseases. And again, this is biased because we were only initially picking Sera. Uh, but dinghy is a very important source of, um, of morbidity, um, less so mortality here in, in Cambodia. Um, but we were interested in also finding these other rickettsial-type diseases, um, Orentia and various rickettsies, uh, so that we could better understand um, how to develop targeted diagnostics for them um, because oftentimes they're overlooked and, and not treated as such. Um, in terms of systemic viral illnesses, uh, 
we have a kind of a variety of a hodgepodge. And then, uh, as I mentioned at the top, less so on gastrointestinal and respiratory diseases. And then uh, we have a handful of bacterial illnesses and that were from this peri-urban hospital. And again, in our in our district provincial hospitals in Cambodia, we do not have true ICUs. And so part of what I'll talk about scaling today is moving into those more complex medical environments, but also why detecting bacterial genomes has been a bit more of a challenge from CIRA in, um, in our, our particular clinical setting. And so what I thought I would focus on um, would just be two quick clinical uh, vignettes of, of what is the impact of an agnostic approach by not really thinking about which target, which targeted, which pathogen you're targeting. And uh, as you can see here, this is a, a picture of um, the hospital uh, where we have our sign hanging that says, got a fever in uh, Khmer and uh, our neonatal ward uh, and then our, our hospital lab. And so the first case um, that really illustrates the beauty of metagenomics is an eight-year-old girl who um, had come in uh, fairly sick with a fever, and it was an open-close um, case of, of dinghy. Her rapid test was positive, her PCR was positive, and because we had enrolled her into the metagenomics um, study, um, she uh, also, when we sequenced her sample, had a beautiful fully assembled dinghy one genome. Um, however, when we took a little bit of a deeper a deeper look, we were looking at various snippets that were aligning um, to HIV, um, particularly a Vietnamese reference genome. And ironically, she's actually of Vietnamese descent. And it wasn't clear to us at first because these were very small portions of the genome that were covered. But as we began to put it together, we could see that we had more than 60% of the HIV genome uh, detectable. And therefore we went back uh, without wanting to cause undue alarm to the parents uh, and asked to be able to do these additional tests, um, these additional serologies, and ultimately diagnosed um, the eight-year-old, uh, the mother and the two-year-old uh, sister as well um, with HIV. And so uh, they're all now on antiretrovirals and are doing well. And so I like to think of this as a case of, of preventing what, what could have been much worse down the road. Now, another case um, is... Um, and I would mention that I have photo permissions for all of these uh, photos, uh, is a 13-year-old female who had been coming in uh, for several months driving um, on a motorbike more than, more than an hour uh, to this peri-urban um, hospital. Uh, she lived out in the forest and coming in continually with these um, fevers, aches, and chills, and um, was told she had dinghy or she, um, the tests were always negative. Uh, and so we, she was enrolled in the metagenomic study. And at one point, um, she had a rapid test that was positive, but actually she had no dinghy on metagenomics. Um, but we began to see various contexts for Plasmodium vivax. And as you know, right now in Cambodia, we're trying to eliminate um, malaria. And so there's very low levels. Uh, and so we went back to the field and sure enough, we found um, despite all the negative RDTs, uh, and a negative PCR, we saw very, very low parasitemia of 16 parasites per microliter. Uh, so she was then um, hospitalized uh, for treatment with Primaquin, um, which is standard of care if you have Vivax here, but is not consistently given. So presumably she had just been relapsing from the Primaquin because, uh, or relapsing from the Vivax because she'd been, um, had not had liver eradicating therapies. Uh, so again, that was another another chance to intervene um, before she was continually misdiagnosed and, and ultimately uh, much sicker uh, at the end of the day. So 
I also don't have time today to talk about all of the different ways that we use metagenomics from a population level um, in terms of dengue and Zika and chikungunya, as well as COVID. Um, but we're able to really take individual cases and learn um, about pathogen transmission. And I think this is important when we think about um, in a global health setting, resource allocation, vaccine deployments, and how we change our national surveillance in terms of our targeted um, tests that can better pick up and appreciate these diseases. So uh, very quickly, I'll just mention, um, as we've scaled from the pediatric cohort to the IDC cohort, uh, we're very pleased um, to be have been selected for phase two of the Gates Grand Challenge to now expand from our peri-urban hospital that you see here right in the middle. All these black dots um, are represent anywhere from one to six patients who've already been enrolled and sequenced in um, our phase one. Uh, to move over here to the right, where you can see this dense red urban area that is Phnom Penh, a city of more than 2 million, and three hospitals that we are moving into, um, the National Pediatric Hospital with a large ICU, um, a large uh, general hospital with uh, 28 ICU beds, uh, as well as a maternity hospital. And uh, we're particularly excited because this will be our opportunity to really move more into complicated disease. Um, to see more, more sepsis that oftentimes when people are so sick, they may bypass some of the provincial um, hospitals to get to these major referral centers. And so our goal is to really scale up the number of patients that we enroll in sequence. Uh, and I think the question to scaling here uh, is, is bigger, better. And so we've already scaled up from our iSeq um, that was four to six million reads to this beautiful NexSeq um, that um, our lab technician trainee was standing with that just arrived uh, last month, uh, which will provide up to 1 billion reads and we can actually run 200 samples at a time instead of four to six million. But with that scaling up, um, certainly we've, we've met some bumps that we've been able to work out in terms of how we improve our internet speeds here. How do we um, innovate to have more high throughput methods to be able to create, to prepare that many libraries um, for the sequencer. And so we have a combination of manual and semi-automation uh, and also some various pooling screen schemes to make sure that we're maintaining quality as we, as we scale up our numbers. And then um, from a data management, and then also, as you saw from the map I just showed, every patient is geotagged. And so we've also been, uh, we started by dropping GPS points at every single person's house, which was not sustainable. And now we, we use people's smartphones in order to pull geotags um, with their consent. So uh, with that, um, I will uh, just mention our future goals um, of expansion into these hospitals, as I mentioned, to understand more complicated um, infectious etiologies in the ICU leading to sepsis. And then also being able to optimize metagenomics. In our case, um, with the iSeq, it was difficult to uh, really to identify those more complex bacterial genomes. The iSeq was excellent for viruses. So we're looking forward to using our new NextSeq that I just showed um, in order to really understand uh, the bacterial drivers um, in, in the ICUs. And then the addition of nasopharyngeal swabs uh, as well as our goal enrollment of 4,000 patients by the end of 2024. Uh, none of this will be possible without um, our amazing team here in Cambodia, uh, which you can see here, as well as all of our partners in the government here in Cambodia, as well as everyone back in uh, the US who helps support our mission here in Cambodia uh, to ultimately understand disease and, um, and improve, improve outcomes. Uh, so with that, I'll be happy to take any questions. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Manning, for that great presentation. 
Uh, I mean, it's you. You raise uh, an, an interesting point of uh, capacity being uh, um, limiting sometimes in in terms of of the, the these methods, and that you were able to accomplish a certain number of uh, and answer a, a certain number of questions with with a, a basic sequencer, and you're now moving to to something that that has a higher capacity. Now, is is that kind of just more samples now that you're going to be able to run in parallel or are you also are you also looking at incorporating other kinds of questions let's say for instance microbiome questions that maybe a, um, a smaller capacity sequencer would not have the ability to uh, to, to assay uh, that is a great question, Farhad. So I think the 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 point of the microbiome we've actually been thinking about a lot over the last um, month since we got the next seek, because we are now collecting the nasopharyngeal swabs, and there's a lot of interesting questions, obviously, in terms of um, respiratory infections if we're seeing shifts in microbiomes um, in our pediatric cohort or in these febrile uh, cohorts, and. What if you are using an iSeq? If you do a 16S amplicon, um, which obviously more targeted, you're not going to catch any viruses, and then the iSeq would actually be fine for the microbiome from a nasopharyngeal swab. Um, however, if you want to talk about multiplexing, running lots of samples at a single time, and instead of using 16S, doing everything still a shotgun, then um, then the next seek is going to allow for a lot more versatility and and scaling. Because when I think of the number of samples I can put on the next seek and how much these cartridges cost between an I seek and a next seek, then you actually are more are moving more into the cost effectiveness of it by being able to put more samples on and do it in a single in a single run, as opposed to doing 16S here on an iSeq, doing metagenomics here on the next seek. Um, so I think it's just a question of, of, of kind of pick your poison. Um, but that's what we're, we're thinking in terms of how we're using the next seek, both more samples, but also eliminating um, the need for uh, extra runs, but still being able to answer mm -hmm. questions about microbiome. No, great, great insights. And, and we look forward to, to, to your group kind of Leading, leading the way with some of these uh, um, efficiency questions just in terms of platforms and, and systems. There was another question about um, that, the dengue case, for instance. Uh, um, you, know, what, what, you know, how much are we missing kind of from what we think uh, are routine diagnoses, right? You had an example of somebody that had, a, as you said, I, I think, you know, open and shut case or very, very obvious case of one pathogen um, uh, happened to get enrolled in the metagenomics uh, program. I can't remember exactly why that was. Was that just kind of random sampling or there was another question about that patient and then you ended up finding the HIV. How, how much do you think we're actually missing um, uh, just in our routine practice where we get one answer and then we stop because we think that's the, the only and sufficient answer? I think co-infections, right, are, are what keep infectious disease doctors awake at night, right? They're certainly possible, um, but, you know, you don't know what you, you don't know. And, uh, and oftentimes we, we do stop, and especially with something uh, like dinghy, where there's not necessarily a targeted treatment, you're going to provide supportive care, and then maybe they look a little better and they go on their way. And especially here, where maybe people kind of disappear, there's a lot of migration um, for labor. Um, then, then it's never picked up again when they have another fever. So um, I think that the the beauty of metagenomics is that maybe we are missing things, but we just don't know that we are. And uh, 
and it has been eye-opening. Um, we have multiple co-infections that we found. <laughs> um, I only just went through those two cases because they are very obvious of uh, obvious clinical cases. But um, but but yes, uh, there are co-infections out there, and it's just to ma- to what matter of clinical degree. Um, you know, we can we can find them. Got you. Well, thanks, Dr. Manning, for for your time and for your talk. We look forward to ongoing uh, learnings from you and your group uh, in Cambodia. I would next like to invite to the floor Dr. Martin Grobush from the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Uh, He's going to be talking to us about the challenges of AMR in fighting tuberculosis. Um, He obtained his medical degree from from Bonn in Germany and his specializations in internal medicine, infectious disease, and tropical medicine uh, in in the UK and in Berlin. Uh, For a period of time, he was a full-time tropical disease researcher uh, in in Tübingen, Germany, um, as well as uh, at the Albert Schweitzer Hospital in Lamborghini, Gabon, uh, and is full professor of infectious diseases at the University of Witzbatersrand, Johannesburg, since 2005. He's been the chair of tropical medicine and travel medicine at the the University of Amsterdam and brings uh, a a lifetime of expertise in this field. Um, We look forward to hearing um, from you, Dr. Grobush, about your talk today. Thank you very much, Farhan, for your very nice introduction. And thanks to the organizers of the conference for inviting me to speak today. I'm tasked with uh, addressing the challenges of AMR in fighting tuberculosis. I'd like to start with pointing out that the diseases we are discussing these days are all closely intertwined. Um, Sepsis and HIV, for instance, and as well, sepsis, of course, and COVID. And again, COVID, of course, and uh, tuberculosis. This is a slide uh, from the recent Global TB World Report 2012, uh, Global TB Report 2020, uh, showing how dramatic the impact of uh, the COVID pandemic is on the care for uh, all of those with other chronic diseases, including chronic infectious diseases such as HIV and tuberculosis. The uh, connection between MTB, bacteremia, and uh, sepsis, and um, uh, TB and sepsis actually is quite clear. What we frequently overlook in the TB field is that uh, many, many tuberculosis cases go together with an MTB bacteremia and uh, sepsis, very often coursed by the same, but sometimes also by a different strain. This problem is much more pronounced in adults than in children, but um, in both groups it has um, uh, considerable proportions. Um, If we look at um, sepsis, etiology and outcomes in adults in sub-Saharan Africa, we shall see that uh, not only HIV is a very important factor, but that a large proportion, a considerable proportion, of course, different in various or differing in different settings, but still that different proportions of all cases which we label as sepsis cases are owed to tuberculosis. And um, if we then look at um, MTB bloodstream infections and the mortality risk in seriously 
Um, ill adults with HIV, we see that um, yeah, tuberculosis and HIV together, and then particular if it comes to a bloodstream infection, are a considerable reason, a significant reason for mortality in um, patients, not only in sub-Saharan Africa, but there in uh, many places in particular. Now, if we look at the um, let's say three groups of high burden countries pertaining to tuberculosis, then of course we do have a um, TB um, um, problem, but we also have uh, a TBHIV and in particular an MDRTB problem. And this all culminates in a, a fairly large number of countries, actually mostly in low end income or exclusively in low and middle income countries where uh, these three pandemics come together actually where we have a significant overlap of um, our TB patients being co-infected with HIV and at the same time having uh, a drug resistant strain of um, tuberculosis um, in maybe half of the cases nursed um, uh, through uh, incomplete treatment and in about half of the cases already primarily acquired um, as multidrug resistance. If you look again at HIV and multidrug resistant tuberculosis, then we see that in almost all countries afflicted, um, yeah, the double problem really amounts to um, yeah, a... Um, a dimension which um, is uh, one of our major um, obstacles in our quest to overcome um, yeah, the TB problem and uh, on our way um, uh, along the end TB strategy to yeah, optimize control even up to elimination if not eradication. Um, WHO has set very, very uh, ambitious goals, um, uh, milestones and targets um, in order to eliminate TB. And what we see here is that um, if we look at the uh, percentage reduction in absolute numbers of TB deaths in TB incidence rates, etc., it becomes clear if we look here at the lower circle that unfortunately the end is still not in sight. Um, we are way off our targets. On the other hand, we must say that significant progress has been made to um, tackle all those problems. What the global health situation, if you look at the estimated TB incident rates, figures from uh, 2020, depicting data from 2019, we see that um, unfortunately Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, parts of East Asia and uh, South America are in the focus, together with parts of Southeast Asia um, are in the focus of the um, problem of tuberculosis in total, we do see falling trends, or we see trends that um, uh, death and incidences are falling, yet uh, we are still far from reaching our goals. And one of the major obstacles, of course, is the spread of MDRTB. Um, as I said before, um, uh, half of the cases, almost half of the new cases are already primarily acquired as multidrug resistance 
resistance or resistant even to a higher degree, which would be um, um, uh, extremely resistant to be thus being defined as uh, not only uh, resistance against the two backbone drugs, INH and rifampicin, which determine multi-resistance, but also to the fluoroquinolones, which would determine um, uh, extensively drug-resistant TB. And the other half is um, TB cases, which um, yeah, started off maybe as fully susceptible TB, and then due to obstacles in treatment, improper treatment, due to um, uh, various factors, including um, um, yeah, a poor choice of drug, the need to cessate, to stop uh, drug treatment due to adverse effects. Actually, this all contributes to MDR-TB being a major problem in um, pulmonary, extrapulmonary, including bloodstream infection, TB. Now, um, if we look at the world map, then um, the biggest concern is, of course, about those countries which bear the brunt of the infections, not only in terms of rates, but also in absolute numbers. But I would li just like to briefly point out how complex the problematic is, because naturally, in our control efforts, we focus on the, on the big problems. But I would like to take you for a second here to this place in Central Africa, Gabon, the place where I'm working, just to show that um, what we can see here is that we witness in um, very remote population spread over a uh, African rainforest area, actually, that there is an enormous uh, clustering and split of, spread of drug-resistant strains. Now, on a global scale, with only um, uh, very few people, not much more than a million, living um, in, a, in a big area. Actually, this might not be a big problem. But um, I would like to point out that it is well a problem that we do have many areas in the world where MDR and extensively uh, drug-resistant tuberculosis is spreading almost uncontrolled, which is reflected here in the treatment outcomes um, yeah, graph figure where we can see that um, not much more than 50% or maximally 60, 65% of all patients with MDRTB and higher degrees of resistance are appropriately treated with a um, yeah, positive outcome in terms of clinical cure actually. Now, um, there are many reasons for this. One of the main reasons is that the treatment which we have to administer to MDRTB patients is excessively long. And until very recently, um, up to 20 months of um, treatment would have been the standard. Now, over the past couple of years, an enormous effort to come up with uh, novel therapies, novel drugs, actually novel compounds, but also novel combinations has um, proven to be a game changer here. This is a summary slide of the current uh, treatment recommendations and um, what 
we can see here is actually that um, with regard to first-line treatment of drug-resistant tuberculosis, um, we have moved away from using Ovivara for the first time in a privileged situation to be able to move away from injectables, actually. And injectables are a major problem, a major obstacle um, with regard to adverse event profiles and also with regard to uh, compliance and adherence in patients because um, uh, if you are dependent on many, many months of regular uh, intramuscular injections, this is a major obstacle towards the accomplishment of treatment. Now, uh, it's impossible to go into all details here, but I just quickly like to say that, um, yeah, with these novel regimens, um, we are able in at least a a particular group and bloodstream infections wouldn't wouldn't fall into this category um, to shorten our regimens quite dramatically actually and um, as we can see here um, there is an enormous wealth of um, still ongoing attempts to further optimize our treatments of course not only for drug resistant TB but also to shorten therapies for drug sensitive TB and uh, the progress which has been made is immense and will certainly contribute to um, further improvements in the care and uh, the addressing of the problem of multi-drug resistance. Of course, uh, therapy is fine, but before we administer the right therapy, we need to come to a diagnosis. And of course, there is still a big role for um, clinical judgment, for basic uh, mycobacteriological techniques, but um, increasingly, of course, molecular methods. And it's impossible to go into detail here, let alone to address all these uh, various points here. But we are moving rapidly on a global scale towards uh, applying um, even more sophisticated and um, um, uh, field-applicable methods to diagnose and characterize uh, drug-sensitive and drug-resistant strains. Now, this is all uh, so far so good, but I'd like to point out that a major, major um, obstacle, and that applies also to many facets of sepsis care and others also to COVID, that the human factor and, and very, very um, uh, basic things such as addressing um, uh, administrative problems, such as finding a way around uh, organizational problems, such as identifying um, uh, patients early, allotting them to a place where they um, can be safely treated, etc. That those are um, uh, still major obstacles for us to um, come very close to what we are hoping for, which is um, um, personalized precision medicine to address uh, tuberculosis and its interface with other diseases, which um, not only in high-income countries should help us by um, uh, identifying uh, tailor-made uh, treatment uh, regimes um, uh, supported by uh, reliable biomarker profiles, which will aid us 
us and guide us through uh, uh, readjusting the therapy through the course of the therapy um, until a, a positive outcome in terms of clinical cure. And uh, unfortunately, we are still um, uh, quite a bit away from this, but major progress has been made. And much what applies to TB and the AMR problem in TB certainly applies to sepsis as a whole as well. And with this, I'd like to conclude and I'd like to thank you for your attention. Thank you, Dr. Grobesh, for, the, for this presentation. You raise uh, this very interesting intersection uh, with uh, TB, HIV, even COVID, uh, as, as you mentioned. And this has been such a challenging disease to study and, and, and to try and treat. Um, there's a question about uh, the, your, your statement on the potential to shorten regimens for resistance and for sensitive TB. How, how short uh, do you think these regimens can get and, and, and how, is, is there a better way or maybe not a better way, but is, is there, a, you know, with these regimens being so long, months long, uh, you know, are, are we anywhere close to having the right biomarkers to be able to, 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 to do this in a way that's anything more than empiric? Well, we could spend uh, two or three days discussing the state of the art of biomarker identification. The short answer is that, unfortunately, um, uh, we are not there yet, actually, and um, still a lot of research has to be invested. The question is whether yeah, the biomarker issue is one thing. I think a lot of progress has been made in identifying and characterizing strains. Um, I think the major progress would be um, uh, on the front of individualizing therapy uh, based on um, individual patients' response, which of course should be measured by biomarkers, but also more access to state-of-the-art pharmacokinetic um, um, uh, techniques could make a difference. We see that this becomes achievable and is even cost-effective yeah, in high-end settings, uh, such as uh, some of the European or North American treatment centers. We are still uh, quite far away from um, um, having the opportunity to apply that broadly in the field in uh, many um, uh, low and middle income settings. But I, I would expect um, um, that uh, yeah, there will be certainly progress towards uh, biomarker identification over the next years. But I would like to remind us that we spend already uh, almost as much of time, money and energy into identifying the optimal biomarkers as we do into the next generation of TB vaccines. So um, mm -hmm. um, it is a difficult field, actually. Yes. Well, thank you for your continued effort at this very difficult problem, as you say. One another uh, um, question from the audience was with respect to, to latent TB and its, its impact on COVID. How much of COVID severity um, that we're seeing do you think is complicated by uh, subclinical TB? Yeah, I would personally say that um, um, if we are really talking about uh, latent tuberculosis, uh, subclinical TB might be a different kettle of fish, but really latent tuberculosis, I would reckon that the influence is fairly limited, actually, because if it's latent, it's immunologically non-active, actually. Um, so to that end, I would 
reckon that the influence is limited. We have, of course, TB and immunology against TB, also immunology against TB vaccines um, gave rise to a lot of uh, question whether, for example, BCG vaccination would protect against COVID. Um, uh, there is a lot of good reasoning why that could be the case. About 20 clinical trials have now been initiated. And as, as a contributor to one of those who is still not published, but um, where it's already known and has been communicated, we have seen in a cohort of six and a half thousand uh, Dutch elderly um, uh, people whom we vaccinated, of which we vaccinated the half with BCG and the other half not that there is zero effect uh, with regard to protection against COVID, actually. And, mm. Mm. Yeah. and that would mean maybe in, in conclusion, it's not really correct to do that. But I would say this also underpins the notion that um, at least for latent TB, I would not expect much in terms of co-cross-interaction -cross interference. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Grobush, for your for your talk today. I would now like to welcome Dr. Taslimarif Syed um, from the Center for Cellular Molecular Platforms in India. He is going to be talking to us today about sepsis and antimicrobial resistance, um, and speaking both about therapeutic and diagnostic interventions. Um, where are we? Is the title of his call uh, of of his talk. His initial training uh, has been in, was in uh, Germany and the United States uh, um, for uh, his, his uh, uh, PhD and, and postdoctoral work. Uh, also has, has undergone uh, training in management for biotech and innovation from QB3 uh, at, at UC Santa Cruz, Berkeley, and San Francisco. Um, he, he has undergone a, uh, as well as at the, the Wharton School of, of Management. Um, he is now adjunct faculty at the Indian Institute of Technology in Madras and also at the Amrita Institute School of Biotechnology, where he heads the uh, Discovery and Innovation Accelerator Program. He is actively involved in promoting innovation in life sciences and healthcare and supporting translation of discoveries. And we look forward to your talk today, Dr. Syed. Thank you so much, Dr. Imam, and hello, everyone. I uh, hope everyone is keeping safe. Uh, uh, today, uh, I, I want to largely talk about uh, uh, for uh, this particular session about sepsis and AMR and some of the innovations that we are seeing closely from India. So I wanted to talk about it a little bit more uh, and, and kind of share the, uh, the recent updates that are coming in. Uh, so uh, as uh, Dr. Imam mentioned, we are based out of Bangalore. It's a Bangalore Life Science Cluster. And we are uh, Department of Biotechnology of the Government of India as an organization. Largely, we are involved in uh, you know, promoting deep science innovations and taking, converting uh, or translating academic uh, knowledge that has been already out and making it more so industry-ready by doing the translation bit on that. Um, uh, there are three organizations and the campus of around 1,800 people uh, altogether. Um, just to, and we are based on a Bangalore city in, in India. Uh, we all know about this. I do not want to talk about it larger, but I think in terms of the, the impact of AMR, the, the global tsunami, as we call it, health tsunami, uh, the, Asia remains one of the biggest, uh, you know, critical issue and, and, and more so in India, which possibly has uh, much significant numbers in AMR 
and hence uh, more infections and leading to many complications that could come, including sepsis kind of situations as we go forward. Um, we all know about the drivers uh, in India. The numbers are very high uh, in terms of the mortality rate. It's almost like 415 for every 1,000, 100,000 people that actually get infectious disease. And uh, already it's a 700,000 deaths that we have per year, and which is, as for the AMR issue, as we know, around 10 million mortality over by 20, 2050, India is estimated the number, which is around two, uh, you know, two to two point five million, which is significantly high. To that, that that's the larger reason that it becomes very important that in India and with India, uh, major efforts are built to minimize the AMR as we go forward, and also have solutions to uh, ensure that the uh, the treatments happen early with early diagnostics too. At the same time, uh, the issue in terms of the neonates uh, also is very, very high. Uh, uh, One million Indian children die in the first four weeks of each of, of their life each year. That's one million. And that's uh, and a lot of this deaths, around almost 200,000, are caused by sepsis. Um, and that's a significantly large number for you know early birth. Uh, uh, connected uh, the deaths we have. Um, we have many efforts that we are doing at CCAM broadly in terms of what we want to do in terms of prevention of these diseases and AMR, which leads to uh, kind of delayed uh, infection treatment causing septic sepsis. And we have capabilities that we are building in prevention, diagnostics, and new drugs. Uh, a, a 10 seconds perspective on that, uh, on prevention, we are looking at uh, air decontamination uh, in ICU setting using biomonitor, uh, which uses combination of textile chemistry and aerodynamics. Uh, Koyo Labs has a US FDA approved product for uh, you know mini, uh, you know kind of preventing ventilator associated pneumonia, uh, which happens on the ventilated patients through a, uh, you know secretion system that actually takes care of the secondary infections. And the biofilm work, uh, you know, prevention work that happens to Dr. Prashant. Uh, something that I'll talk more about today later on is SpotSense, which talk, you know, which does for neonates early companion diagnostics with uh, with a very smart technology for uh, testing the cytokines and, and other biomarkers uh, early on, even for neonates. Uh, module innovation, which does uh, point of care diagnostics potentially in 30 minutes, at least for a urinary infections and Rapidex, which is attempting to do the antibiogram or AST, antibiotic susceptibility test, uh, in five to six hours for at least to begin with urinary infections. New drugs, uh, both are Carbex funded. Uh, uh, so we have among these three are Carbex funded uh, attempts. Uh, in addition to module, Bugworks is doing new antibiotic using a new, uh, completely a new uh, system to you know uh, kind of uh, escape the bacterial evasion or you know prevent the best bacterial evasion and they are towards getting into clinical trials very soon and Gangajin uses bacteriophages as a approach and they have been recently funded by Carbex. So while these attempts happen, we all know that the uh, and I wouldn't talk about it. I'll skip the slide, but we all know that this load of AMR leads to a very high number of high number in terms of the sepsis and uh, many uh, in, in, in countries like India, many deaths happen uh, 
because of infections, but they're not many a times they're even identified as sepsis. They're, they're possibly identified as infection deaths. But you know, the, the, the mechanism that actually takes a person down has been around septicemia and sepsis in a way. Uh, some of the work that I wanted to uh, possibly, you know, there are several attempts in terms of sepsis we all know, which are happening. Many people have worked on the TLR uh, antagonists, and there have been attempts to, you know, build uh, small molecules to do that, uh, both either as a, uh, you know, small molecule or a maps. Uh, there haven't been really a good pipeline to attempt that, and hence that demands, uh, you know, continuous work to see if something can be done. To, to minimize the damage during the sepsis and also so that uh, there could be a specific precision antibiotic therapy, target antibiotic therapy that could actually take care of the infection and uh, you know this higher survival rate in sepsis. Um, uh, one of the work that I wanted to present is that uh, the lab at CCAM actually has developed a nature-derived uh, immunomodulatory protein uh, uh, called as DIASEP1, which improves uh, the post-sepsis survival rate, uh, uh, where a single uh, intraperitoneal dose we have seen in, uh, in the CLP model of polymicrobial CLP model, and as well as in viral sepsis, uh, has actually uh, given the very high efficacy, which I'll show you in the next slides and so on. Uh, this, the mechanism of action has been also it, through its activity, not necessarily, uh, you know, the the... Uh, antagonist activity, but rather a combined activity at TLR2 and TLR4 specific one through so NF-kappa-BA and AP1-dependent manner. Um, and the, the, the particular protein is a scalable, uh, uh, has a scalable protection and the early data in the in vitro and in vivo studies do not show general toxicity. The patent has been filed for that. Um, this, quickly to talk about the data, to begin with the in vitro data, uh, this is the heck blue assay which allows you to understand uh, the pathways that it works with. And uh, here you can see the activation that it leads to rather than, so it's a very interesting approach in terms of timing rather than you know, uh, toning down the inflammation. It actually, it's a very, uh, it, it, uh, the current thesis in sepsis emerges that there is a, a, a wave uh, uh, or a kind of a wave-like movement in terms of immune markers. And there's a time that actually requires activation uh, and, and this is where this uh, particular molecule comes into picture, where it activates the uh, and and it's uh, and and kind of at the same time tones down the larger uh, the the cytokine uh, uh, storm that is coming in. So it's it's kind of toning down at one level and keeping uh, the required information going. And it 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 actually clearly stimulates the secretion of cytokines in in the THP one cells as well as you can see across uh, IL-6, IL-10, IL-1-beta, and TNF-alpha. Uh, but very importantly, in the polymicrobial uh, uh, sepsis, that is sequel ligation puncture, which is a, a gold standard for sepsis, uh, we can, you can clearly see that uh, against the untreated or even antibiotic-treated mice within 15 days, we can see 80% uh, of survival in mice compared to possibly uh, the 20% or 10% otherwise. And, 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 the, and this survival, we think, is, is crucial because uh, during the survival is a, an opportunity window where a targeting antibiotic therapy could happen. So it, this was 
both doses were done in 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 uh, along with antibiotics and we believe that uh, the time would allow specific uh, pathogen id and the specific antibiotic therapy uh, for that uh, so this window of buying this window of uh, of time is uh, we believe it's going to be crucial it's an early stage work definitely and we are uh, we are looking for to take it further through glp talks and so on uh, to see if this can be taken forward uh, similarly in viral sepsis as you can see in the data again very early data but you can uh, a, a quick study of 15 days where infection was caused early on and the intervention was done even post uh, four days uh, for influenza what we can see clearly is that the the lung health in a normal uh, control mice uh, as we can see in terms of the uh, uh, the study influenza model infected mice with clear infiltration and so on and the treated one you can see much better improvement even within the four days we can actually see a similar thing uh, was shown in the clinical symptoms like uh, survival and weight loss and and you can uh, see that the the dosage allows the survival against 40% or 45% to almost 75 to 80% survival when when it is a single dose uh we believe again so while viral sepsis ranges from 5% to uh, 10% in total sepsis but covid uh, uh we all know the covid situation currently the most uh, uh fatal conditions come through the septicemia and sepsis and that control is something is very much needed while a lot of people are looking at many uh, anti inflammatory molecules uh, in including al6 and so on uh, something like this which allows uh, inflammation to go on but at the same time to tone down the uh, the the cytokine storm uh, is an ideal uh, target to look at uh, so overall this particular molecule and uh, another version of it uh, one one very important thing is that over last 3 years we have strong candidate for this extension of survival time and we believe this extended survival time that we call it as a therapeutic window of opportunity in icu setting could be a very good partner or a, you know a, a, a kind of a uh you know a joint treatment therapy along with a targeted antibiotic therapy we are looking for uh you know development co development opportunities or licensing further to other companies at, at at this point of time i'll quickly move to uh therapeutic uh diagnostics and we see i'm sorry about if if the quality of the uh slide is not that good because of the minute print that it has but we know that the challenges that remain in that and a lot of it uh while one talks about the molecular diagnostics uh to biochemistry tests to blood uh, chemistry tests uh and and the rapid uh bedside test and clinical symptom analysis a, a lot of it is now coming to as close as point of care because of the severity and and more so for specific cases like neonates i just wanted to bring about a very quick uh excellent work that one of uh, our innovators have done that is in neonatal sepsis and we know about the issue in neonatal sepsis and and the challenge of uh while on treatment to challenge to understand the cytokine levels uh, uh spot sense has actually developed capability at two levels uh to uh to quantify the the markers the cytokine markers uh in two forms one on a simple uh, uh strip based Uh, assay which they are already uh, providing on a saliva basis so one doesn't need to take uh, the hill prick uh, from from the uh, from the neonate and also saliva based uh, in form of the pacifier 
so that you can actually put pacifier and and try to uh, assess uh, the the by uh, the inflammation levels so that you can actually understand as a company and diagnostics the treatment uh, uh, the outcome uh, or the impact and also understand whether there needs to be a change in terms of the treatment and so on so this is a very exciting work a clinical study has been has happened in in Safdarjung Hospital at in Delhi and and we are hoping that uh, once approved uh, uh, with good reference data with blood and saliva we will actually have a real solid saliva based biomarkers for the uh, the in, uh, inflammation markers uh, for now the next work that i i wanted to quickly show uh, talk about was the work on uh, the antibiotic susceptibility test or antibiogram uh, rapidex uh, we all know the importance about you know the understanding which antibiotic to give and to prevent AMRA also to treat uh, people as soon as possible, more so in ICU, but also uh, outpatient so that they don't take uh, broad spectrum antibiotics. Uh, so the Rapidex actually has, uh, we possibly I do not want for to this audience, I don't think I need to do it, but the currently the larger challenge that happens both for inpatient and outpatient is that the time taken around 48 hours uh, globally to to identify the specific antibiotic to give uh, so that they can treat the patient uh, appropriately. And there are ways where the, the disc diffusion and the other assay, uh, while it, it takes significant amount of time, which delays the diagnosis, it many a times, if you're in an ICU or otherwise even in an inpatient, uh, for somebody who is weak, it risks the life and it definitely increases the AMR risk. So an early turnaround time and an affordable one that too uh, would be a significant value. Uh, Repidex has developed uh, uh, you know, a, a, a microfluidics-based approach where uh, within, uh, in terms of a, to get the susceptibility directly from the clinical sample, for now it's urine, within six hours of sample collection um, and uh, where you can actually test it against a high number of antibiotics and then identify the 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 uh, the response to the antibiotics uh, to uh, in the in the sample itself, and this has been tested on escape pathogens, and we are uh, taking trying to take it forward in terms of further development and testing uh, on on uh, other pathogens as well, and and you know uh, possibly do the uh, broad clinical study to establish the uh, complete relevance, which we are very confident right now and hoping to bring down by one hour as we optimize the technology further. We believe that uh, you know, hospitals will uh, hugely benefit this because of many aspects. And of course, patient benefits will be sepsis prevention so we are not get into septicemia while uh, you know, fiddling or attempting to find the right antibiotic uh, uh, pattern for the patient who is suddenly picked up fever inpatient and so on. Uh, save antibiotics and associate diagnostic expenses. And of course, reduce risk of EMR, which is gonna be crucial. It is also very, very important if, because this is affordable, can be in countries of middle income and low income countries where uh, daily visitors uh, go on to the broad spectrum antibodies because they have to go to work. And, and a same day, uh, uh, the understanding of the antibiotic would allow physicians or the doctors to be able to give the appropriate antibiotic rather than giving them the uh, one that would allow them to you know, uh, keep working while they're, you know, carrying infections and so on. So these are very important, broad aspect of it. But I just wanted to 
largely say that this kind of infection uh, innovations are, are are largely uh, responding to uh, uh, you know how we are uh, challenges health challenges we have. I'll conclude here, but uh, happy to be uh, in touch uh, with larger community uh, in terms uh, about this innovations or larger efforts that are going on in India for both therapeutic as well as the diagnostic uh, solutions. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Syed, for this glimpse as to what would, would be uh, potential products in the, in the near future um, for, for both uh, biomarker detection and point of care diagnosis as well as therapeutics for sepsis. Um, we're unfortunately out of time for this session, so we're not going to be able to take any questions on Dr. Syed's talk, but I would like to thank you all for your, for your time and attention today, to thank uh, our sponsor, Biomeria, as well as all the speakers uh, for, for their presentations. We look forward to your continued attendance in the upcoming sessions of the World Sepsis Congress and encourage you to visit the website uh, to sign the sepsis declaration uh, and to follow posts on social media. Thank you again for your time and attention. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everyone who made this possible. Section 13 will be released momentarily, and Session 14 and 15 are coming out on June 15, 2021.